morning. He does indeed have the words of eternal life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel. Today we're going to take on the 51 verses of chapter 22. So if you have a seatbelt nearby, click it in. And please remember that these are not my words, and they are more than David's words. They are God's words to us. And we as his people should hear and receive them as such. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And David spoke to Yahweh the words of this song on the day when Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon Yahweh, to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy. Thick clouds of gathering water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. Yahweh thundered from the heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare, and the rebuke of Yahweh at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh and not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight, with merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. 
You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of streets. You delivered me from my strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Yahweh lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God. The rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the men of violence. For this, I will praise you, Yahweh, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather here in this place on this morning, we do not have words to express your glories adequately. We confess freely that you are far more merciful and wonderful than we could ask or imagine. You're far more powerful not just in exercising fear in your enemies, but you exercise the power to save, to deliver us from circumstance, to deliver us from ourselves. Father, come and meet with your people because you delight to do that very thing. Come that we may lift our eyes and behold you. Come that we may sing praises to you and write songs with our lives worthy of your glories. By your enabling power, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.
these 50 verses of song, they're a reflection and a gratitude that David is expressing. The saga of David's salvations and deliverances. This is what we have here. It is a rear view mirror gaze upon God's goodness to David in his past. It has a parallel in the Psalms. You'll note that Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel 22 are virtually interchangeable. Much ink has been spilt, dotting all the differences and studying all the nuances, but overall, they're the same. They speak of the glory of God in the life and reign of David, in bringing him to his kingship, in preserving him from many attacks. He is, in many ways, recording something that no other king I have ever known of has done. Many a king desires a chronicle be made, extolling the virtues and glories of their prosperities and victories. In other words, kings generally want to be the hero of their own adventures. We can relate, if we're honest. We like to present our stories, our histories, in their best possible light. David has no share of that in this psalm. David's song here reflects an entirely different desire. This king of Israel yearns for Yahweh's greatness to be the focal point of all praise. David is not absent from the content of this psalm. But David sees more rightly than we do that he has because God gave. He is because God moved. And he remains because God has enabled him to remain. It is easy to look at a psalm like this and, and to see it as a sandwich too big to bite. How do we squish the bun low enough to get it between our teeth? One commentator said, David can't say enough, but he can say much. I relate to David. I can never say enough, but I say much. If we're to understand this psalm, Rather than go down into the nitty-gritty, my suggestion for us is that we take the flyover that David intends. I don't think David wants us dissecting jot and tittle here. In fact, if we hear the words and the language that David is using, he's quite classically piling up. I'm much more familiar with the New Testament than I am the Old Testament. I confess freely. As a young Christian, I was fascinated with the letters of Paul. And there are times in Paul's letters 
where he is piling up. He's throwing adjectives and adverbs as fast as he can to try and help lift our eyes beyond our normal lives. I thought that was a trait of just Paul. David proves that Paul had a basis in the Old Testament. We should always be looking for a basis in the Old Testament. David is trying to lift and stretch his praise to reach the splendors of heaven where God lives. But he knows he's inadequate to do that very task. We can never quite fully express our deepest loves. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Fathers, tell your children you love them. Let them see the depth in the twinkle of your eye. Children, embrace your mothers. Squeeze them for daylight that they might know the affections and trust that you have laid embodied in them that words are inadequate to express. And if that is true among human brotherhoods and friendships, family dynamics, even co-workers, if it's true for us in our fragile and limited abilities, how on earth is it to be translated from our finitude to his infinite glory? It doesn't mean we don't try. And try is exactly what David is doing here. So as we come, I want you to see this in three sections. David wrote a pop song, or at least I'm giving you three letters to capture the different sections. P-O-P, pop. The first section, verses 2 through 20. This is a section of profound praise. Praise. David is filled with praise. Profound. Praise, meaningful, long-lasting, profound praise. Second, general obedience and righteousness. Obedience, the O. This is 21 through 31. General obedience and righteousness. And third, once again, we have the P. This is the enabling power of Yahweh. So David moves from verse 32 through 51, glorying in the power of God to bring about all that is that is good. So we see these three sections, praise, obedience, and power. Praise, obedience, and power. Let's take a look at the first Profound praise. How many of you feel adequate to offer profound praise? We can offer praise, right? Good job. Thank you. Well done. You're great at that. We offer praise, I hope, regularly. 
In fact, if you want to know how to get your teenagers to do more of anything, praise it. Praise their relationship to it. You'll almost always get more of what you praise. But David offers an intimidating level of praise here. If we slow down long enough to listen to the gravity, the gravitas of this psalm, it can become overwhelming. How many times in our lives do we slow down long enough to sit with a thought all the way through, to evaluate and reflect? My guess is, for many of us, the urgencies of the moment draw us out of the praise in reflection he's rightly deserving. Do you hear the staccato of this section? Do you hear the cadence and rhythm? How many mys can we count in verses 2 through 20? How many times are we bending our ear to see my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, me. That's just verse two and three. Can you hear the union David reflects in his relationship with God? Don't hear those mys as spoken by a 21st century post-enlightenment writer. He's not snuggling it saying, mine, like kids warring over toys. No, no. David is looking at what he shares in with God. Who is God to you? The dominant theme here is, of course, that of a rock, which to me is hilarious because David is most famous for five smooth rocks, yes? You only need one. But he sees God as a cleft that protects him. And the imagery, overwhelmingly one, is of protection here. The cause of David's great praise is that God has protected him and rescued him, delivered him from so many adversaries. You see this in the last line of verse 3. My Savior, you save me from violence. As God does. Taking the violence upon himself. In David and our stead. You see David reflecting the language of worship over and over, extolling the virtues of God, the worthiness of God to be praised, the salvation that he experiences, both practically and spiritually. If we remember 2 Samuel 
as coming from 1 Samuel, probably one book together, we will begin to remember how many times was David hanging by a thread only for the enemies to do God's bidding, only for the confusions to take hold. How many times is David miraculously and or improbably delivered from the certainty of death? In fact, listen to the chorus of verse 6. The cords of Sheol entangle me, the snares of death, Not just risk, but death. David offers profound praise. The source for the my of verses 2 and 3 is found in the content of 4 through 20. Read 4 through 20 and see if you can remember the stories contained in this book. How many times and how many ways was David delivered from death? There's an element here where we understand the nature of praise when we see the desperate nature of distress. Praise comes when we see the desperate nature of David's distress. The more peril you're delivered from, the more praise you're prone to offer. But it's not enough. It's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough. It's not nearly enough. And David feels it in his bones that God is more worthy than his words can express, more lovely than his attitude could ever, ever encompass. And here we see David imagining the events of Mount Sinai again in his life. Lightning and darkness. He's evoking this imagery, this imagery Of God meeting with Moses with the dangers of devastation promised for the wrong one to approach in the wrong way. Verses 8 through 16 deal with the interventions of God. David here lacks all brevity. He's reimagining Sinai's blazing anger. He's trying to imagine and lay hold of the unimaginable power of God contained on earth. David sees the deliverance he has been gifted with. And it puts him on his knees... And on his toes, twinkling as they do, dancing as the ark comes in, David gives his whole body in worship to God. In the streets, on the battlefield, in the palace, in the throne rooms of heaven. There's much we should learn from David in the profound nature of his praise. Praise. 
we also see the graphic nature of his helplessness. Listen to verse 17. David says, he sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Is that not a cry of helplessness? The flood waters are over my head. I am drowning. The force against me too strong for might and sword to matter. His enemies confronted him in the day of calamity. But Yahweh was his support. Yahweh was the undergirding force. Verse 20, he brought me out into a broad place. He is speaking here of the imagery of freedom. When you're in mad distress, you don't feel free. You feel gripped and squeezed. God took him from that grip and squeeze and put him in a wide open field. That's freedom. And he delighted in David and David in he. But here we must remember, as we go through this psalm as many others, it is not enough to understand David's story. It's not enough to understand David's songs. They are not written to inform you only. They are written to thrill you as you come and understand them. David wants us to delight in his deliverer, not consider him. David wants us to rejoice in his rescuer, not just his rescue. David wants us to join in his praise of the covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. It's not enough to understand. It should thrill us as we understand. Profound praise. Second section we have here is verses 21 to 31. Arguably the most controversial, though I don't think they are. I think we begin by remembering that David is going to extol the virtues of his obedience, his general righteousness. We will see him frame this section in the repetition, ele, repetitional elements of verses 21 and 25. Hear this and see them as bookends. Yahweh dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. And then its other counterpart in verse 25, and Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. What happens between those two bookcases is not a theological dissertation on the sinfulness of man. It's not him sort of Santa Claus-like sneaking in works righteousness. If you do good, you get good. That's not what he's saying is true in the doctrine of justification. Again, he's flying over in this moment. I think we can take a tip here in learning from 
those who are skilled masons. We have one in our midst. In masonry, I was taught at Dale's kitchen table that it isn't to be inspected super up close. If we were to understand the industry standard, then we are to evaluate flaws in the brickwork as seen from 20 feet away, 25. I got this, so I'm close. (laughs) If you draw close to masonry, you will always find missing sand or clumps of, of mortar. You'll find imperfect brick laid next to imperfect brick. But taken as a whole, understood together, the wall is not about one brick. It's about how it stands structurally sound together. And may I say often quite beautiful when your hands create it. As we see this section in 21 through 31, many of our brothers and sisters get very nervous. They need not be. Let me say this in a memorable way, I hope. David has not forgotten about Uriah's blood on his hands or Uriah's wife in his bed. He has not forgotten those. They are not the center of this section. In other words, David here is not talking about sinlessness. He's talking about a wholehearted loyalty. He's talking about being generally loyal to God, generally righteous in his actions and attitudes. And they are best understood when contrasted with Saul, not with Christ. Can you see the difference? David is not saying, I am sinless like Jesus will be. David is saying, my intentions are to honor Yahweh. My loyalty is to be found to him. How many times does David take the low position? How many times does David seek to serve the Lord by serving Saul? Or by running from Saul? How many times was Saul's neck within grasp of David's dagger and both walked away alive. It was in reverence to Yahweh that David did not deliver Saul to his end. It was in reference to Yahweh that David did the action of exiling himself to spare the city of God from the siege of revolution and insurrection. Is David sinless? No. Is David loyal? Yes. Desperately, yes. Overwhelmingly, yes. So it is in that way that we hear David cry in verse 22. I have kept the ways of Yahweh. I have not wickedly departed from my God. All his rules were before me. From his statutes, I did not turn aside. David denies opportunities of murder. He could have done better on adultery. He does well 
in protecting the resources of the kingdom. He denies himself. One way I think about this is to remember that David took no shortcut to Israel's throne when many were presented. But I also think we get gun shy in this section because we don't really want to hear its main point. And so we explain it away with theology or we neglect its point by sheer overlooking or apathy. Here's what David is saying. How you choose to live in your troubles really does matter. How you choose to live when the grip of death or poverty is grabbing hold of you. When being outed comes nearer and nearer as the searching spotlight looking for an escaped prisoner approaches. What is your response? Do you confess or do you hide? Do you come clean? Do you seek the Lord, his mercy, and to make a situation right? Restitution is real. Retribution necessary. How you choose to live in your troubles really does matter. We love to study orthodoxy. We love to see David and others lead us in doxology. But we get pretty shy around conversations of orthopraxy. Right belief? Yes, let's study it and know it. Right glorying in God? Yes, hallelujah. Thank you for Jeremy and his team. Thank you for the voices of a congregation that lead us to the very throne room of heaven. But pastor, can you move past the examination of right living? Of living God's way and not the world's way. Those who faithfully follow Yahweh and esteem his word by obeying it, they are those who can expect his blessing. Those who don't, can't. Those aren't my words, it's a commentator. Hear them again. Those who faithfully follow Yahweh and esteem his word by obeying it are those who can expect his blessing. Those who don't, can't. It does not mean that there could be no blessing for them. He's speaking here of expectation, not possibility. None would be in this room. This room would be not a church, were it not for his undeserved mercies. But how you choose to live matters. We all do well to remember that. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and doxology. You need those three chords properly woven together to understand and live out the Christian life that you've been given. And this is where David goes. So we move from P to O and back to P. 
The third section here is verses 32 through 51. And this is the enabling power of Yahweh. Just as we discussed a moment ago, it is God who enables David's victories. It is God who provides the resources and the timing. How many times do David and his people starve if God doesn't physically prompt enemies and distant friends to come forward with food and resources? This is the enabling power of Yahweh. In other words, David is convinced, as we all should be, that it is Yahweh who gives David his victories. David can do no good apart from the work of God in him and through him. In other words, everything good that David has done, he has been empowered by God to do. You need only follow the active verbs in verses 31 and, I mean, sorry, 32 through 51. Follow the active verbs. David begins this section with an important question For who is God but Yahweh? Yeah. Who is God but Yahweh? Is there any other God? that really makes sense of the world around you? Is there any other way that salvation could be brought to bear to rescue us from the hellish circumstances we have created for ourselves? None righteous in an absolute sense, not one. For who is God but Yahweh? Who is a rock except our God? And then David boldly declares, this God, this Yahweh covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, he is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. He set me on securely up on the heights. Whatever mountains David has seen himself climb, he credits God with changing the landscape beneath his feet. To make him not slip, the perils were so dangerous and difficult. He made his feet tiny, like little deer hooves. David credits not only God in miraculous ways, he also credits him in design and purpose. He says in verse 35 that it is God who trains his hands for war so that his arms can bend a bow of, what do you make bows out of? Not bronze. (laughs) Not bronze. You make them out of something bendable, something molded for its purpose. David is saying, so strong has God made his arms that that which should not bend, bends easily and repeatedly in his grip. He's not Gaston claiming about the muscles he built himself. The difference between David and others in the bending of a bronze bow is God, not David. 
You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. That is a direct jab at Saul. Remember the situation where Saul didn't kill the king he was supposed to kill? David's saying, I did the opposite. You said kill and I did it because I trust in God's judgment as I carry out his instructions. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They even cried out to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them. You get the idea here? There's a lot of war in David's day. There's a lot of battles. It's not one battle fought once. But over and over and over again, God gave him victories. God gave him deliverance. Here, verse 44, you delivered me from strife. The strife with my people, you kept me as the head of, and I love this part, nations. David sees the kingdom of God in Israel as belonging to more than Israel. David is noticed that he has deliverances that came from those outside Israel. Did he have enemies outside Israel? Yes. But he also had enemies inside Israel. So too does he have people inside Israel and inside the nations. The gospel has always been for the nations. Foreigners come cringing to me as they heard of me. They obeyed me. They sweared loyalty to him. Go back and remember the outsiders. Listen to the ites that precede their names. That you might understand that Edomites and outsiders came and worshipped God and loyally attached themselves underneath David's reign. And this causes other foreigners to lose heart, to come trembling. There were battles that did not need to be fought. Because God had already won their hearts. Listen to 47. Yahweh lives. And blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God. The rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance. We don't like that word. Culturally, can we agree? But somehow, we need to be comfortable with all of what Scripture says. Because the problem is not Scripture. It's us. The God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, I will praise you. How many of those verbs belong to David? And how many of those verbs belong to God? God is the actor and David the recipient. For this I will praise you, O Yahweh, among the nations and sing praises to your name. And here's the climax. Great salvation he brings to his king. And God shows steadfast love to his anointed, 
to David and his offspring forever. Guess what word has made its way into verse 51? Hesed. Hesed. It's the Hesed way. David wants all of us to see the totality of his life, to see the totality of his rise to power, to see the the preservation and deliverances that take place. He wants us to see that all of them are made possible by the Hesed way, by the way of God as he loves, costly love, loyal love, the loving kindness and loyalty that only God can give to David. And then, and then brothers and sisters, hear me. It is not just for David, this Hesed love. It's not just for David to have and snuggle up with. It is for that, but not only. It is also to be empowering you in humility, in strength, to love the unlovable. Does not God do that? To take forgiveness and offer it freely. To live this Hesed way. If you've forgotten the lessons and studies of the Hesed way, go back to the chapters. We as a church might move forward in the preaching through this book, but it doesn't mean you can't go backward and find and study and remember once more. And why does this matter? It matters because as he uses the word hesed here, he's offering a prophetic punctuation. He's trying to say that in the midst of a kingdom that can feel fragile, whose entire future can rest on the actions of one man in one moment, over and over and over again. It's only a feeling of fragility. The truth is, he's the rock, unmovable. That he has a plan that's unchanging. We don't like uncertainty, true? We like certainty, true? Be certain of this, that God Almighty lives and that you experience his kindness, his costly love, his enduring faithfulness all day, every day of your life. It's all In other words, Yahweh's promises are sure because Yahweh's power will bring them about. Yahweh's promises are sure because his power will always bring them about. I often ask the question, what's the theological witness of this text? Here's my answer. David's entire history should be read and heard in the light of this psalm. If I were to go back and preach through this, which I'm not, I would begin with this psalm. That we might see it as the filter through which we understand all that is coming. Because it's not enough to understand David's story. We're nearly done in our study. But David wants us to join him 
in the worship of his Savior. So let's. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are worthy of praise, that you and you alone are true, our rock, our fortress, our mighty refuge. God, would you move in us and pile up your kindness on us that we would offer praises to you. Praises that come from the memories of our perils. Praises that come from deliverances we were protected from. The circumstances before they happen, not just during. God, may we seek your blessing and that we would be a people who walk as you have called us to walk, empowered by the Hesed love that you have for us. Father, come. Come and surrender our hearts to you. Give us eyes that we would see and ears that we would hear and hearts that are moved by your goodness and your wisdom and your power. And all God's people agree. <laughs>